you please look with me in your order of worship at the confessional reading element. Uh, this morning we are confessing together Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 35, question and answers 92, and then 96 and 98. As I mentioned in the prior couple of weeks, we don't have a scripture reading because our scripture reading is contained in question and answer 92. We are making our way through a consideration of the Ten Commandments. And so question and 92 is our reading of Scripture as it contains for us the Second Commandment. As always, I will read the question if you'd please respond by reciting the answer. Question 92 asks, What is God's law? You shall not make for yourself an idol whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the iniquity of parents to the third and fourth generation of those who reject me, but showing love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. Question 96 asks, What is God's will for us in the second commandment? That we in no way make any image of God, nor worship Him in any other way than is commanded in God's word. Question 97 asks, May we then not make any image at all? God cannot and may not be visibly portrayed in any way. Although creatures may be portrayed, yet God forbids making or having such images in order to worship them or serve God through them. Question 98 asks, But may not images as books for the unlearned be permitted in churches? No, we should not be wiser than God. He wants the Christian community instructed by the living preaching of his word, not by idols that cannot even talk. Well, boys and girls, it looks like it's on the Wit Girls this morning. Uh, what, uh, what section are we currently considering, Annabelle? Gratitude. Yes, gratitude. And... Uh, that is, if you remember, a number of weeks ago, we looked at those motivations for uh, doing good works, that maintaining our salvation or the fear of punishment are not proper motivations for the Christian. And the Catechism gave us a number of motivations, and the chief of which is gratitude, which is why gratitude is the label for this entire third section. Now, boys and girls, there are two main parts of the Christian life, genuine repentance or sanctification. What are those two parts? Yes, Lily? Right, yes, the dying of the old man and the rising to life of the new. And part of what it means for this new man to rise to life is that we delight in walking according to the will of God in all good works. And uh, what, what is a good work? There are three elements of a good work. Boys and girls, do you remember what the three elements of a good work are? At least one or two of the elements? There's something internal. And Annabelle? 
True faith, yes. So think, oh, go, you have more? True faith, and then it proceeds from the internal to the external. So these good works which proceed from true faith need to conform to a certain standard. What is that standard? Is it the opinions and traditions of men? Uh, Violet? God's word, yes. And even more specifically, God's law. So these good works proceed from true faith are done according to the law of God, not the opinions or traditions of men. And then are they done to the glory of man or the glory of God? Noel? Glory of God, yes. So again, they proceed from the heart, they conform to God's law and scripture, and they're done to the glory of God who is in heaven. So you can think of it as proceeding from the internal uh, to the external. Now, boys and girls, what is the first commandment? Can someone summarize the first commandment? Annabelle? Loving Loving God. No other gods before me. And that forbids idolatry. And now we are taking our, uh, the two weeks, so this is our second week, considering the second commandment. The second commandment. Now, I've said before that the first commandment is the who. We are to worship God alone. Uh, the second commandment is the how. How are we to worship God? And last week I mentioned that there's a specific reference and a more general reference related to the second commandment. Do you remember what, what the specific reference is to the second commandment? Images, yes, images. So last week we thought about why the catechism forbids the making of images, which include images of Jesus. And now, I mentioned last week that there's also a more general reference related to this commandment. And that more general reference has to do with worship. How do we worship? Beyond just not using images, how do we worship? And so you'll see both of these references contained in question and answer 96. Right? What is God's will for us in the second commandment? The specific reference is that we in no way make any image of God. We see that explicitly in that second commandment. But then more generally or more broadly, the second commandment also relates to worship. That we in no other way, or that we worship God in, uh, um, excuse me, that we in no way make uh, any image of God nor worship him in any other way than he has commanded us in God's word. So we're to worship God according to his command. And so this Lord's Day uh, helps us answer some important questions. For instance, why do we do what we do in worship? When you look at our order of worship, our liturgy, why do we do what we do? Why do we have all of these different elements? Well, this Lord's Day will, will help us understand a little bit more why we have constructed the, the order of worship that we have. Furthermore, if you were to compare our order of worship to the order of worship of just a a typical, kind of broadly evangelical church, there would be some pretty big differences. Why? Why Why are there differences between our order of worship and the order of worship of just kind of a a typical uh, evangelical church? Well, hopefully, as we consider this Lord's Day, we will will come to a a better understanding of, of that question. And really, the dominant answer to that question would be, by most people, well, it's just a, different, a difference of taste, a difference of preference, a difference of style. 
This is why the categories of contemporary and traditional are the most common categories to use when evaluating an order of worship or a worship service. However, what this Lord's Day teaches us is that when there are substantive differences between orders of worship, between worship services, that actually is pointing to some pretty profound differences in how one understands the nature of worship itself beyond mere taste or preference or style. So there are two very important principles that we need to learn to make sense of what the catechism is saying here in this Lord's Day. The first principle has to do with corporate worship. When we gather together on the Lord's Day between the call of worship to the benediction. The second principle has to do with our life outside of corporate worship. So this first principle, which is tied to corporate worship, is this. That we only do in corporate worship what God commands. That's what we see in question and answer 96. That we worship him in no other way than he has commanded us in God's word. In corporate worship, we only do what God has commanded. What this means is that we are to avoid two things. Not only are we to avoid those things that God has explicitly forbidden. So for instance, we, uh, we cannot as a church substitute the declaration of pardon with an animal sacrifice. Hebrews tells us to not go back to the types and shadows. That's forbidden. So of course, we, we cannot institute animal sacrifices in new covenant worship. But it's more than this. We also are to avoid those things and practices to which God has not spoken. Those things and practices where God has remained silent. We are to avoid those things. And there are many things that we could think of as possible practices, possible elements in our worship service that aren't in God's word. Dramas, skits, video productions, all sorts of things. But this principle tells us that we are to avoid those things because God has not commanded them. You know, boys and girls, sort of like if your um, mom gives you a, a, a recipe to follow, you're going to bake something as a very finicky recipe, and you have to be careful to follow that recipe precisely. You can't add to it or take away from it, otherwise your your uh, baked good won't, won't turn out. In many ways, the military, I'm sure, works, uh, works in, in this same manner. O- we only are to do in corporate worship what God has commanded. Now, Reformed theologians has, have helpfully made a distinction here when we think about this principle that governs corporate worship. And this, this uh, distinction is the distinction between elements and circumstances. And so the elements of worship are those things that make worship what it is. For instance, the Word of God as it's read and preached. The sacraments, prayer, confessing our faith. These are what make worship what it is. You take these things away and you don't really have worship. These elements are those things that are regulated by this principle. We need explicit uh, biblical authorization for the elements of Scripture. Now, the circumstances of worship 
are those things that are incidental to worship, but by necessity demand attention. For instance, we need a building to meet in. We need to appoint a fixed time on Sundays to gather for worship. We need to make decisions about whether or not the speaker will have amplification through a microphone, whether or not the congregation will be sitting or standing, and if they're sitting, what will they be sitting in? Chairs? Pews? What type of chairs? These are decisions that the church needs to make, and you will search Scripture in vain to find an answer to these questions. Scripture doesn't tell us what time of day to meet on Sundays or what type of chair to sit in or whether or not we should use a microphone. So these are things that are not regulated by that principle. We have to use our wisdom and common sense to make decisions that benefit the body when it comes to the circumstances of worship. So this first principle is that in corporate worship, we only do what God has commanded us. And we see that explicitly in question and answer 96. This principle is sometimes referred to as the rule of worship or the regulative principle of worship. This is how God regulates our time together. Now, the second principle has to do with life outside of corporate worship. So basically, the rest of our life. And the rest of our lives are governed by a different principle. And this principle could be summarized as avoid what God has forbidden and use wisdom. Avoid what God has forbidden and use wisdom. We don't need explicit biblical authorization for the things that we do during the week. In fact, it would be impossible to live our ordinary lives according to that first principle. How would you choose what to eat for breakfast? How would you choose what to make for dinner? God's word doesn't tell you what you should eat for your meals. Think about how you chose your profession. You used wisdom and recognized that there's a pretty big, um, pretty big category of Christian freedom when it comes to what vocation you choose. God's word doesn't tell you explicitly what vocation or profession you are to choose. You use wisdom and recognize that for the most part, this is an area of Christian freedom. Think of... Um, why you married your spouse. Yes, there are certain requirements in God's word. You have to marry in the faith. But beyond that, we use wisdom and acknowledge that there's a lot of Christian freedom when it comes to our selection of a spouse. Think about how you learned your profession. Did you learn your profession by studying God's word? Probably not. You learned your profession through sources that originated in God's book of general revelation or nature. And so our life outside of corporate worship is governed by a radically different principle. Avoid what God forbids and use wisdom in these matters of Christian freedom. Now, the dominant view in evangelicalism, kind of broad evangelicalism, is that this second principle not only governs our ordinary lives, but also governs corporate worship. So that when, we put, when, when churches put together an order of worship, the only lens through which we need to evaluate what we do is, has God forbidden it? And as long as there's not explicit, um, as, as long as God has not explicitly forbade a certain practice, then we can do it. 
And churches can get pretty creative about what, what to do in corporate worship if that's their principle. Why not juggle? Why not do skits? Why not do uh, dramatizations of biblical narratives rather than just preach and teach? God hasn't forbidden those things. It's interesting, a, a number of years ago, Mackenzie and I were visiting a, a church of a family member, and we were visiting this church and, uh, on Mother's Day. And in between the worship sets, the, this particular church did a hug yo mama cam. So when you think about going to like a baseball game and you have the kiss cam, randomly is put on, on couples. Well, it was Mother's Day, and so the church decided to add an, an element in, into their worship, and it was a hug yo mama cam. So all of a sudden, through the speakers, there was this uh, yo mama rap song that came on with these yo mama jokes. And then on the stage, they had a camera that was randomly placed upon kids and mothers that then went to the big screen, and these kids were supposed to hug, hug their mother. So again, if, if you're operating by this second principle, that when it comes to corporate worship, all we have to do is avoid what God has forbidden, then why not have a hug your mama cam in corporate worship? But this Lord's Day is teaching us that there's two different principles that we need to know, internalize, and be aware of. One principle for corporate worship, and then one principle for the rest of life. And so what I'd like us to do is to briefly consider how we see these two principles at work and in use, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. So when you think about the, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant equivalent to New Covenant corporate worship was temple worship. Now you may recall that God commanded Moses to come up Mount Sinai, and when Moses was on Sinai, God revealed to Moses the, the template of this temple, how this temple was to be constructed, how the priests were to live and operate and dress within this temple, how the sacrifices were to be offered in this temple. Israel was only to do what God had commanded them to do in the temple. And this is made explicit in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 32, as God is telling Israel during this time in which he's giving Israel the law at Mount Sinai. And he, he's telling Israel, don't worship me as the pagans worship their gods. And he says this in 12:32, everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. And Moses here is specifically speaking about Israel's worship in the temple. Only do what I have commanded you to do. Do not add to my commandments and do not take away from my commandments. Now in Leviticus chapter 10, we see a narration of the death of Aaron's two sons. Again, Aaron was uh, the priest of Israel, the high priest of Israel, and his two sons were also priests in Israel. And in Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, we hear about the death of Abraham, uh, excuse me, Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu. So listen to Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 through 2. Now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it 
and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. So, again, this is the narration of the death of Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's two sons. Now, notice what they were doing. Now, it doesn't tell us explicitly, but the context tells us that they were in the temple doing their priestly duties. And what did they do? They offered an unauthorized sacrifice. What this means is that the sacrifice that they offered was not forbidden by God. God just hadn't commanded it. And because they went against this principle, this principle of corporate worship, God consumed them with fire. God, in the Old Covenant, took very seriously that his people and his priests only did what he commanded them to do in the temple. Now, let's imagine what Nadab and Abihu's life would have looked like outside of the temple. I'm sure even on this, this very day of their death, they probably ate, ate breakfast. And maybe they had figs instead of nuts. Well, God didn't tell them to have figs instead of nuts. They probably washed their face or took a bath. They, that very week, may have spent their leisure time doing, during, doing a, a certain practice or you know, spending time with their family or going for a walk or what have you. They're, I'm sure they, 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 of course, did all sorts of things outside the temple that God had not commanded, and they were not consumed by fire by doing this. However, when they came into the temple and did something that God had not commanded, that was very serious because their life outside the temple was regulated by a different principle, the principle of avoid what God has forbidden and use wisdom. However, when they stepped into the temple, a new principle was operative, and that principle was do only what God has commanded you to do. There are many other examples of, of these two principles at work in the Old Testament. Outside the temple, life operated according to that second principle. Inside the temple, life operated according to that first principle. Now, do we see these two principles at work in the New Testament? That's, I think, the, the bigger question in people's minds. Do we see these two principles at work in the New Testament? And we do. So, for instance, in the book of 1 Corinthians, we see Paul using both of these uh, principles as he is writing to this church in Corinth. Now, 1 Corinthians is really all about uh, Paul addressing the church's conduct, or largely about Paul addressing the church's conduct in corporate worship. And so in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is addressing the Corinthians' abuse of the Lord's Supper. The Corinthians are essentially treating the Lord's Supper as a common Tuesday night Greco-Roman feast. They're confusing this holy meal with a common meal. The rich are stuffing themselves and the poor are going hungry. And Paul is saying this is not how the Lord's Supper is meant to be conducted. And so he is giving them principles that 
they are to abide by. So, for instance, in verses 18 through 19 of 1 Corinthians 11, Paul speaks about how there are divisions among the church in Corinth. And he says that there actually must be factions among the church so that those who are genuine might rise to the surface. And the meaning of this word genuine is those who've been approved by an authority. So Paul is saying that members of the church in Corinth need to be examined by the overseers of the Lord's Supper. They need to uh, prove their genuineness. And then verse 27, Paul says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of Christ. Paul is saying that there is a worthy and unworthy way to eat the Lord's Supper. A proper and improper way to eat the Lord's Supper. Paul continues in verses 33 and 34 of that same chapter and says, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. So Paul is giving the church in Corinth prescriptions, directives, for how they are to partake of the Lord's Supper and Paul desires that the, that the church in Corinth only do what God is commanding them to do through his apostleship. Paul is saying that the Lord's Supper is not an open banquet, then people can just come and go as they want and partake however they want to. No, there's a certain way in which the Lord's Supper is meant to be conducted. There's a certain way in which the Lord's Supper is meant to be eaten. And Paul is telling the Corinthians, that when it comes to the Lord's Supper, you only do what God has commanded you to do. Now what about our ordinary meals throughout the week? Breakfast on Monday, lunch on Wednesday, dinner on Friday. Do we have these same sort of directives and how, how we eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Well, it's interesting if we come, go a chapter back in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul is addressing the issue of meat sacrificed to idols in relation to Christian freedom. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, Paul makes this summary statement, and he says, So then, whether you eat or drink, do all unto the glory of God. So notice how this principle contrasts with the principle that Paul lays down for the Lord's Supper. When it comes to your ordinary meals, as long as God's glory is your telos, you can eat however you want. You can be a paleo, you can be a vegetarian, you can only eat meat, you can love junk food, sweet food, salty food. You can have three meals a day if you want to do uh, the fasting where you only eat one meal a day. If you want to eat six meals a day, go for it. As long as the glory of God is your goal, you have freedom. Notice how this contrasts to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. You don't have freedom to eat the Lord's Supper however you want. You need to be examined. You need to examine yourself. You need to wait for your brothers and sisters so you partake together as a body. But when it comes to dinner on Tuesday night, as long as you're eating for the glory of God, have your pick. So Paul definitely is making use of these two principles. There's a certain principle that exists for life outside of corporate worship, and there's a principle that exists and that norms our time together between the call to worship and the benediction. 
Uh, Paul also makes use of these two principles in 1 Corinthians 14. So listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, verses 33 through 35. Paul says, As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. For there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Now, what Paul is saying here is that women cannot preach or teach in corporate worship. But, outside of corporate worship, women can speak freely. That's why Paul says, you know, let them ask their questions at home to their husbands. And really this applies to unordained men as well. In corporate worship, there is directives regarding who can speak, who can teach, who can preach. Not everyone can preach and teach in corporate worship, but outside of corporate worship, ordinarily people can speak freely. As you see, Paul again is making use of these two principles. There's a certain principle that governs corporate worship, and then there's a principle that governs life outside of corporate worship. In corporate worship, we only do what God has commanded. This is true in terms of who um, can preach, who can teach, how we partake of the Lord's Supper. Outside of corporate worship, we have freedom to use wisdom and avoid what God has forbidden. Now, when people come into a Reformed church who are not familiar with a Reformed church and Reformed teaching, I imagine that a common impression that people have, and I've experienced this in the past, that a common impression is that you know, these people, these Reformed Christians, they t- they're really strict when it comes to worship, what we do on Sundays. But then there's a certain level of laxity when it comes to our ordinary lives throughout the week. We as a church don't take a hard stance on the responsible use of alcohol or on how people vote or on how people educate their kids or how we engage in culture. We acknowledge Christian freedom. We acknowledge that there are a lot of things in life where God has not spoken and we are to use wisdom and we will oftentimes come to different conclusions. However, when it comes to corporate worship, we only do what God has commanded. And that impression of corporate worship feeling strict and a certain level of laxity existing in our ordinary lives is actually a pretty good impression because it's, it's a visitor recognizing these two principles. There's a principle that governs corporate worship and then a separate principle that governs our life outside of worship. Well, this concludes our consideration of the second commandment. Uh, Next time, we will proceed and and think about this third commandment, which is still under that larger category of how we are to love the 